0: Hello, it's Vikas Porta, chairman of the Vaki Foundation. You are listening to a session from our Global Education and Skills Forum, a place where leading politicians, businesses, philanthropists, activists, and of course the world's best teachers share, debate, and discover new ways for education to transform our world. Keep the global conversation going and share your thoughts on the topics discussed with the hashtag GESF.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome um, to this event on it's called A World of Bridges Not Walls, Migration, Displacement and Education. And we're going to start with a short video.
0: Do you see this classroom? In it, there are pupils from all over. Each is different. This boy comes from a village. His family traveled to this town to find work. He does not know how to get around in the city yet. Her parents move from another country for work. They send money to their family back home. She is excited about the opportunities in this school. This boy came here to escape conflict. His world was turned upside down. He is seeking normality. Education is central to people's decisions to move. But their education is also at risk once they have moved. Their education needs are often overlooked in data collection, planning and budgeting. First, we must recognize their rights to education no matter where they're from. Ease up on the paperwork. Treat migrants and refugees as you treat their hosts. Don't segregate them into different schools, in slower school tracks or long preparatory courses. They need to interact with their peers. Put yourself in these families' shoes. Give them language and catch-up classes. Help them fit in. Update your curricula and textbooks to reflect history and culture. Don't misrepresent migrants and refugees or their reasons for leaving. Teachers are not superheroes. Train them to teach crowded, multilingual classrooms and those who have suffered trauma. This may be stressful. Help them cope. Make it easier to recognize people's qualifications and previous learning. Don't waste their potential. Bridge immediate funds for refugees with long-term funds for education systems. Because education really makes a difference. It builds people's resilience and sense of belonging. It opens our minds to different cultures, helps all of us face the unknown. In a world of increasing diversity, A good quality education teaches us these are all pupils, no matter their background.
1: Hi everyone, so we're at the end of day one and I'm sure everyone is uh, quite tired, but I promise you we are up for a really interesting presentation. My name is Farah and I'm the Director of Gulf for Plan International Canada. It's a privilege and an honor to be here and to introduce this very timely session with our expert speaker, Dr. Bilal Barakat. Before we start, who here currently lives in a different city or region than the one they were born in? Wow. Who here lives in a different country than the one they were born in? How many of you have moved countries due to conflict or natural disaster? Can any of you remember what it was like going to school in that new city or new country after this big change? That is exactly what the 2019 Global Education Monitoring Report is all about. Currently, laws and policies are failing migrant and refugee children by negating their rights and ignoring their needs. They are some of the most vulnerable people in the world. Yet, they are often outright denied entry into schools that provide them with a safe haven and the promise of a better future. The GEM report is an editorially independent, authoritative, and evidence-based annual report published by UNESCO. Its mandate is to monitor progress towards the education targets in the sustainable development goals. Bilal Barakat joined the GEM Report team at the beginning of 2018 as a senior policy analyst. His research interests and expertise are in educational policy modeling and statistics. His research has been published in leading international journals. He holds a degree in habilitation in education and demography from the Vienna University of Economics and Business, a doctorate in philosophy and education from the University of Oxford, and master's degrees in mathematics from the universities of Cambridge and Oxford. Bilal is himself an international migrant. His father is Palestinian, his mother German, although he has lived and worked outside of Germany most of his life in Austria, the UK, and France. Bilal, over to you. We're really excited to hear about the report.
2: Thank you for the very kind introduction. Now, it's my pleasure and honor to be here uh, today and present to you the 2019 Global Education Monitoring Report on Migration, Displacement, and Education. Uh, Before we start with the presentation, the slides were actually designed to be viewed on a big screen. Now, the 2020 report will be on the topic of inclusion. So, in the spirit of inclusion, um, if your eyesight is less than perfect, I would welcome you to move sort of to the front of the room uh, so you can actually uh, benefit from uh, what you'll see on the screens. Okay. So, fulfilling its mandate to monitor progress on education in the SDGs, The report shows the distance. Is it not working? Sorry about that. Is there an on switch? Yes, sorry. (laughs) So the report shows the distance that the world needs to cover to reach the targets agreed for 2030. One key challenge is to fulfill the commitment to leave no one behind. Migrants, refugees, and internally displaced people are among those groups who may be left behind. Those who want to escape poverty or persecution. Those who may seek better education, employment opportunities, or just plain security. The report has taken the widest possible interpretation of migration, voluntary or forced. It covers internal migration where an estimated one in eight people live in a different province to the one they were born in. Apart from those who move from villages to cities, there are hundreds of millions who move regularly as seasonal workers or nomads. It addresses international migrants who are nationals of one country uh, living in another. They make up 257 million, or about one in 30 people. This does not even include the children of immigrants, the so-called second generation, for whom the education challenges can be similar. And last but not least, it looks at the one in 80 people who have been displaced due to conflict or natural disaster, whether internally or across borders as refugees or asylum seekers. The daunting prospect of displacement due to climate change is only touched upon. But this is not a report on migration and displacement per se. It is a report on how these movements interact with education. It is about how teachers and education planners respond. It is about the the need that migrants and refugees have for education to thrive in their new homes, to feel that they belong. Migration displacement can have both negative and positive effects on education systems. Let's start with the challenges. Internal migration leads to millions of children of migrating parents to be left behind. More than one in three children were left behind in rural China in 2015. Urbanization and related demographic change lead to large-scale school consolidation in many middle-income countries. Half of all rural schools closed in China and the Russian Federation within 10 to 15 years. They also lead to growing slums where educational provision is often scarce. International migration affects sending countries' education systems as much as those of receiving countries, particularly some of the smaller sending countries. At least one in five skilled people emigrated from 27% of countries. And displacement particularly affects low-income countries, which account for 10% of overall population, but 20% of all refugees. Refugees more more so than migrants are of school age, uh, with half of them being under the age of 18. And they often arrive in parts of host countries that already have poor education provision. but migration and displacement also represent an opportunity. Children who move from rural to urban areas often acquire more education than those who do not move. In Indonesia, for example, the gap was three years. Children of international migrants also tend to benefit. Children of Colombian immigrants to the United States had at least two more years of education than children of people who did not migrate. And when we talk of migrants, this also includes students studying abroad, international students. The case of at least 6% of students in half of all countries. And refugees may be leaving their homes, but they often also leave insecurity behind. There were 12,700 attacks on schools between 2013 and 2017 in conflict-affected countries. In turn, education is a potent factor shaping migration flows. The higher the education level, generally, the higher the probability of migration. Those with tertiary education are twice as likely to migrate from villages to cities and five times as likely to emigrate abroad as those with primary education. A point that's often missed in public debates is that with relatively few exceptions, immigrants are actually more educated than natives on average. And that's true even in countries that don't pursue selective uh, immigration policies. And finally, education is a critical, even if contested, factor-shaping attitudes towards immigration. A 2017 survey from across 140 countries showed that the higher the level of education, the higher the level of openness to immigration levels staying the same or even increasing. But education's role is potentially much more important than what these relationships uh, suggest. An inclusive education system can help address causes of tension by helping host and immigrant communities interact and live together, or by providing equal opportunities. It can help immigrants and refugees realize their potential, which is often wasted. And ultimately, it can help immigrants and refugees earn a living and support communities back home through remittances and other mechanisms. The report shows, estimates, that if the cost of remitting money from abroad fell from currently 7% on average to the SDG target of 3%, one billion US dollars could be generated for education. The importance of these relationships is why education-related commitments have made their way into the two global compacts on migration and refugees that were signed by almost all countries in the world at the end of last year. But how should these commitments be achieved? What are the priority actions? The report makes seven specific recommendations. First, governments need to protect the right to education for all people on the move. Just two years after the New York Declaration, where countries committed to provide education to refugees within three months, 1.5 billion school days of refugees have been lost. Countries from Australia to Hungary, from Indonesia to Mexico, for example, are still providing limited or no education at all to asylum-seeking children in detention. Countries need to protect migrants and refugees' right to education regardless of ID documents or residence status. Jordan tackled this after initial obstacles by allowing Syrian refugee children to enter public schools without ID cards in 2016, for example. Governments have to um, make education and immigration laws consistent with each other. They should not allow interpretation, uh, discretion in interpreting laws at local levels so that headmasters can uh, indiscriminately send refugee children. Uh, away. And they should put formal processes in place to inform migrants and refugees of their right to education and to respond to violations of this right. Second, migrant and refugee children need to be included in national education systems. Turkey, for example, has committed to including all Syrian children in public schools by 2020. Refugees should spend minimal amount of time in schools that don't follow the national curriculum. Eight of the top ten hosting countries include, already include, refugees in national education systems, including countries such as Chad and Ethiopia. Immigrants should not be segregated. They should not be concentrated in specific schools as happens in so many European countries. They should spend as little time as possible in preparatory classes. Inclusion means interacting with their peers. And they should not be separated into slower, often vocational tracks, which compromise their future opportunities. Third, including migrants and refugees in national education systems is only the beginning. A plan is needed to actually respond to their specific needs. Not all countries do this successfully. This graph um, shows that countries in southern and eastern Europe, uh, highlighted in red, are still struggling to prioritize the needs of refugees and uh, migrants. Countries need to provide language programs, for example. They need to provide accelerated education programs where education trajectories have been interrupted. The Norwegian Refugee Council, for example, runs an accelerated learning program in the Dadaab refugee camp, which condenses Kenya's eight-year primary curriculum, uh, basic education curriculum, into four years. Refugees need support to overcome cost barriers. Cash transfers in Lebanon increased attendance by about 20%, for example. And adult migrants need financial education to manage remittances. Fourth, countries need to grapple with their curricula and their textbooks. Education can challenge prejudices and develop skills for living together. Yet only a quarter of high-income countries have fully included multicultural education, and a little over two-thirds have done so at least partially. At the same time, More than 80% of those who responded to the Eurobarometer survey agreed that school materials should include information on ethnic diversity. Adapting curricula and textbooks involves respecting past history as well as current diversity, recognizing the contribution that immigrants and refugees make, and promoting openness to multiple perspectives and encouraging critical approaches. The key to these challenges is supporting teachers to take on this complex responsibility. Almost three quarters of teachers in Syria, for example, reported having no training uh, on, on providing psychosocial support. It's necessary to train teachers to deal with diversity, to confront stereotypes and discrimination, to recognize stress and trauma and refer those in need To specialists, and it is necessary to recognize the hardship under which teachers themselves are expected to work. In Iraq, for example, fragmented support to internally displaced teachers led to pay disparities and, as a result, to tensions. The education cluster brought all partners together to coordinate these incentives. Unfortunately, the skills of many migrants are often not being fully deployed, despite their potential, their large potential to contribute to their host communities and societies. Among those with tertiary education in high-income countries, immigrants were more likely to be overqualified for their jobs than natives. To address such challenges, it's necessary to reform institutions to make the ref- recognition of qualifications uh, earned abroad more efficient and to streamline and simplify systems for certifying skills informally. Germany, for example, offers opportunities to identify and evaluate undocumented occupational competencies, as does Norway. Seven, financing education for migrants and refugees has its cost implications. In the case of immigrants, the medium to long-term fiscal impacts are actually rather small. After taking into account both the services they use and the taxes they pay, the cost typically doesn't exceed plus or minus 1% of GDP. But more could be done to target funds where they are needed the most. In the case of refugees, the report has estimated that 800 million dollars uh, was spent on their education in 2016, roughly, roughly equally split between immediate response humanitarian aid and long-term response uh, long-term development aid. Planning for both needs, but planning for both needs to be done jointly with the government in charge. Uh, Uganda demonstrated this successfully uh, recently. And the momentum around the education cannot wait fund should be used to increase this amount. And multi-sector planning should include education as a matter of course. This brings to mind the wider challenges of financing education, beyond the needs of migrants and refugees. Analysis for our report shows the vast disparities Low-income and high-income countries have about the same school-age population, but the former absorb just half a percent of total global spending on education, while the latter get the lion's share at 65%. And spending also needs to be more equitable in other ways. Households bear a much larger share of education costs in low-income countries than in high-income countries. Finance is an important factor and makes a difference. The mobilization of of the international community to increase aid in the late 1990s is one of the factors uh, credited with the advances observed towards universal primary completion in the years that followed. But the financial crisis led to aid stagnation. And primary completion rates have also stagnated at less than 90% since the late 2000s. Today, our agenda is actually more ambitious, aiming for universal secondary completion. Yet only 49% currently do complete secondary school globally. And that figure is just 18% in low-income countries and just 1% among the poorest girls. But even in high-income countries in Europe, young people of migrant background are twice as likely to leave school early. In fact, our agenda is even more ambitious than that, aiming for, all, for everyone to also achieve at least minimum learning levels. First-generation immigrant students in OECD countries were a third less likely than natives to achieve basic skills in reading, mathematics, and science in 2015. In middle-income and non-OECD high-income countries, progress is slow. On average, the share of grade four students reaching minimum reading levels has increased by less than 1 percentage point per year over the past 15 years. And low-income countries start from an even lower starting point. In Sierra Leone, fresh evidence from UNICEF, for instance, shows that among children only 16% had basic reading skills and only 12% had basic numeracy. Ambitious it may be, but the monitoring framework for SDG 4 is helping keep our attention focused on what matters to achieve sustainable development. And this includes a focus on groups such as migrants and refugees who may be falling behind. Please do share the messages of this report. At the link on this slide, uh, you will find all the report materials in multiple languages and formats. And we'll conclude before the discussion uh, with another video giving voices to some of the refugees and migrants uh, that we spoke to for our report. Thank you very much for your attention.
3: Our world is experiencing the biggest migration of people in history, from villages to cities, and from one country to another. Some choose to move. Uh, my est venu here when he was young for his studies
0: because of the difficulty of living in the philippines my parents felt compelled to leave others are forced
3: people on the move do not leave their rights to an education behind i believe that it is a constitutional right for a child to be educated and we need to respect that right.
4: We've had parents arrested for deportation, which obviously affected the school and the population.
3: I'm afraid that one day out of the blue, my dad will be gone or
0: my mom will be gone. It
2: is a constitutional obligation to not abridge access to public education for any child, irregardless of immigration status.
3: Migrants and refugees have unique education needs.
2: El
4: reto más grande para los niños refugiados cuando ingresan al sistema escolar nuestro está precisamente en empezar a acoplarse a ese mundo escolar que es muy
3: But when education systems can adapt to these needs, they have the potential
0: to transform lives. Due to the overwhelming number of students who wanted places in high school, that is why we had to be innovative enough to come up with a model that could take in more students.
3: As we adapt our education systems, seasonal migrants and nomads should also be included in the picture. As we move forward, we need teachers who are trained to support migrants and displaced students as they adapt to new education systems in their host communities.
1: Aquí aquí nos, nos reunimos con este grupo de docentes aquí de Colombia y le vamos explicando un poco la situación de Venezuela. Estos proyectos de sensibilización de nos está ayudando a nosotros como docentes.
0: We, foreign teachers, bring uh, our culture. We can bring different ideas. We can bring different views and things on, on society.
3: By ignoring the education of migrants and refugees, we lose out on human potential.
0: It's only through education that we are able to impart skills to learners we are able to restore hope to these students.
3: Every person has the right to an education. Working together, we must ensure that no one is left behind.
1: Thank you, Bilal, that was fascinating. Um, For those of you who have maybe not seen the report, this is a 500-page report. And I can tell you that as an organization that works in some of these very difficult contexts, um, Plan International faces those realities that you've highlighted every day. But we're grateful that we have UNESCO and the, the GEM report to really highlight and bring all of this together so that at every level, people are held to account um, and making sure that we implement changes to be able to make it easier for young girls and young boys to be educated in these contexts. We're trying. Yeah. Um, you've looked across the world. Um, you're a global report. In your opinion, what are the top three countries doing in terms of getting it right um, in addressing migration and displacement? And specifically, do you have any examples of best practice or innovation where resources are limited?
2: So we try to avoid kind of ranking countries. So what I'm going to do perhaps is, is give you three different examples uh, from different contexts of countries that are doing some things right. Because still, no, no education system is perfect and no country deals perfectly with these challenges. Right? Different countries do different things well. And one of the things we try to do as the Global Education Monitoring Report is to allow this peer learning uh, countries to learn from each other. Seeing as we're here, I might actually start with uh, examples from the region um, and looking at Lebanon, uh, for example. There might be r- people in the room here who sort of are very um, actively involved in that context and could t- talk for two hours about what's going wrong in terms of refugee education in Lebanon. But it's important at the global level to to also put things into perspective and to give credit. When you have rich countries claiming they are overwhelmed uh, trying to uh, deal with refugees that represent 1% at most uh, in relation to their population size, it's important to point to countries like Lebanon that are dealing with 20%, 30%, uh, perhaps even more Uh, refugee populations in relation to their own population, and that still integrate these refugee groups in their national education system. Now, there are caveats there around double-shift schooling, as I said, things are not perfect, but it's important to give credit uh, where credit is is due, given the scale uh, of the problem. A very different example um, in a European context uh, would be Ireland. Um, actually. And if you go back, you know, not that long ago, Ireland didn't have that much of an immigrant population. In fact, for a long, long time, historically, it was a sending country. But within a relatively short amount of time, Ireland has actually moved to a place where it now has one of the largest shares of first-generation immigrant students uh, in its schools in Europe. And at the same time, even during the financial crisis there there was a strong commitment to a multi-sectoral and cross-sectoral approach to intercultural education and also funding intercultural education Uh, at all levels of the education system, uh, even to the point where uh, there's a policy initiative now for the, to allow for the school leaving exam to be taken in uh, several different languages. Um, right. But it's important uh, to highlight that actually some of the really of the inspiring examples of best practice also come from really resource poor uh, places. So we, we uh, identified Chad, for example, uh, in the report as showing a really strong commitment um, and interesting initiatives, for example, around the recognition of teacher qualifications for refugee teachers. So CHAD has implemented or introduced a very uh, interesting scheme, a pathway for refugee teachers to actually become accredited to teach in national schools. And also fully integrating the statistics on refugee edu- uh, education in its regular uh, education monitoring uh, management information system. Wow. Of course, that's not to say that you know, everything's great uh, around education in Chad or everything's great around refugee education in Chad, but to, to show that there are really examples of best practice mm-hmm. to be found all over the world.
1: Fascinating. Especially, I mean, the, the, the topic that you've just mentioned around teacher accreditation is, uh, is obviously one that's it's, it's a very sensitive subject. Um, so it's really great to hear that there are examples of this that, that others can learn from. And um, in, in your opinion, what are the biggest and most important policy changes that you think need to be made to ensure that migrants, refugees, and internally displaced children are not left behind?
2: So it's it's tragic to even have to say this, but in, in some contexts, there has to be a policy change simply away from actively undermining the education of migrants and refugees in a politics of fear and scapegoating. But so leaving that aside, um, I think there's room in a lot of countries to not just make sure that the right to education for refugees and migrants is sort of on the books, but to kind of do a policy audit to look at inconsistencies. So we emphasize that we're not, we didn't produce an immigration report, and we don't discuss immigration policies per se, but we look in, in the report at, in some detail at inconsistencies between immigration policy and education policies. Right? where, in theory, refugee students or migrant students and undocumented migrants and anyone or children have access to local schools. But Mm -hmm. at the same time, there are laws stating that they have to produce a birth certificate to register or uh, that have rules that are misunderstood by schools as requiring uh, a documented residency status or rules that don't allow foreign students, after completing their studies, to actually stay for more studies or stay and find for work, but require them to, to leave immediately. Right? Um, so that's a big uh, area. At the international level, I don't know about you, but when I, when I travel internationally and I, I take a taxi, then, of course, I ask the taxi driver, first of all, where he most of the time, he where he's from, mm-hmm. and also what he originally trained as. Yeah. Right? I Great don't know whether, whether you do that too. Right? So today, on my way here, uh, the taxi driver was from Pakistan, and it turned out that he was actually a teacher. Right? Oh, wow. And it also emerged that you know, he's not. he doesn't enjoy driving a taxi more. He didn't even mention, he didn't even say, well, it pays three times as much as teaching does in Pakistan. No, he said he doesn't really like uh, being a taxi driver. And the reason uh, he's here is because he couldn't get work as a teacher in Pakistan. But, of course, at the same time, globally, we have a teacher shortage. Right? And so it's interesting that actually one of the things we found for the report is that only of all international migration flows are covered by bilateral agreements regarding the recognition of qualifications Um, So and that's also one of the areas that is highlighted in the global compact that there needs to be more policy coordination and policy at the international level to create regular legal pathways for international migration that actually recognizes uh, qualifications and skills Mm.
1: that's a really important point yeah in your research did you and and this comes you know from a place plan international is a, a, a child's rights organization but we focus especially on girls did you notice a discrepancy between boys' and girls' access to an attendance in education, and can you tell us any more about your findings?
2: Right, so as many here will know, many of the issues uh, that create sort of, uh, gender gaps in educational participation and in outcomes, many of these challenges are exacerbated mm-hmm. in a conflict setting. So any concerns around safety and security and not wanting girls to actually you know, physically go uh, the way to school um, is obviously worse. Uh, there are challenges around trafficking and, and sexual abuse. Uh, all of these things are worse, sort of um, more difficult uh, in a conflict setting. And also, we know much less about it. Uh, generally, one of the problems, almost by definition, in these situations is that we have so little data, and so little detailed data. At the same time, there are many other ways in which there's a, there's a gender dimension to the migration and education story uh, generally. Uh, this includes, for example, the question of remittances. Mm-hmm. So there's interesting evidence, both on how remitting behavior is different uh, between male and female uh, migrants, labor migrants, and also there's some evidence, this is not universal, but in some places that female heads of households spend remittances they receive differently uh, from from male heads of households, uh, in some cases more likely to spend them on, on education and, and girls' education. So as I said, this is not universal, it's mm-hmm. a complicated uh, area, but there is some, uh, some evidence there. We actually uh, even though it's a, it's a very thick report, um, it's a global report and there are lots of issues. So we can't go into, we can't cover everything in great detail in the main report, which is why there are actually other products uh, that we produce. One of those is kind of a satellite report on gender specifically. So there's a gender review uh, report. Uh, the one relating or based on the migration uh, report is due to come out uh, before the summer. So I encourage all of you to sort of watch this space uh, and come back for the gender re- gender report when that comes out.
1: Oh, that's great to hear. Yeah. I was interested in terms of the remittances yes. and the differences between um, men and women. Wh- yeah. What what did you notice there?
2: That is complicated. Ah. Um, so, <laughs> Actually, there are some settings where, so you have, you have competing stories. So you have, the, you have the story of trying to get education in order to migrate and send remittances which are then again invested in education, sort of creating a, a virtuous uh, circle, cycle. Of education investments, but in some settings, actually, the opposite happens. Mm-hmm. So where, you know, young boys especially uh, and adolescents can see that okay. you can make more money uh, by migrating and working as an unskilled laborer, mm-hmm. um, you see this in some in some rural uh, rural areas in Mexico that send a lot of. Uh, their Their young males uh, to the u s so if they see a steady flow of remittances coming from unskilled emigrants, uh, then that mm-hmm. can actually act as a disincentive to continue their own education yes. so y- it, it really depends on context and it 's complicated, complicated.
1: Yeah. so all of this needs money, as you rightly yes. pointed out earlier. Um, you know what are your thoughts on how to go about funding this critical area of work and and why do you think this is a good investment?
0: So
2: one, in the presentation, I think the figure came up of uh, $800 million being spent on uh, refugee uh, education um, at the moment. Our estimate is that that's at most a third of the amount that's actually required. I also highlighted some examples of low-income countries really doing their best and uh, and doing the best with really limited resources Mm. and it's it'd be a disgrace for the international community to not support them uh, and let them sort things out uh, all on their own we mustn't forget that you know, something like 80 or 90 percent of all refugees are actually in low and middle-income countries, rather than in high-income countries. Uh, so there's an urgent need for uh, the international community and high-income uh, country donors and bilaterals to actually step up and, and contribute uh, their share in funding the education for refugee communities and uh, internally displaced, and so on. And when we look at when we look at host uh, Countries. All, a lot of the problems around that can arise around social integration or that are perceived as being linked to migration uh, and being linked to uh, a lack of social integration, none of those challenges are improved or or, are helped by not investing in their education. Mm. So I don't want to frame this as you know, the business case or it's a good, invest, uh, a good monetary investment because that's the wrong way of thinking about it. Right? Uh, but there has to be a, a consistency there uh, around, you can't complain about not wanting to spend the money now on education and then uh, complain later on uh, of having to deal with the consequences of not having uh, educated uh, migrant communities.
1: Brilliant, no, thank you for that. I thought I'd just open it out to the floor, if there are any questions. We have about five minutes. Um, Does anyone have any questions for Bilal? Before I ask my last one. Um,
4: There's a mic just here. If you could
1: introduce yourself and perhaps share the organization and your name, of course, that would be great.
4: My name is Iris Adresprat. I work for the Belgian Development Corporation. Uh, And one of the struggles I'm having is, Well a debate we are having internally is uh, around education, how education fits the prevention and management of migration agenda. And uh, one of the debates we are having is about whether whether we should continue investing in basic education because if education levels go up we will see more people migrating as more highly educated people actually migrate. Uh, to countries within Europe, so I'm looking for how can I actually uh, thwart that kind of argumentation. What would you advise me to actually uh, feed into that debate, so to keep um, to keep justifying an investment in basic education in the countries where right. we work?
2: That. That's one of the, the, the politically charged questions that keeps coming up when we present the report in, in, in Europe uh, especially. And so to, to have everyone on the same page, uh, there's, a, there's a misconception in some circles that by investing in sending countries, you're going to reduce uh, migration flows to Europe. Right? And the, the problem with that argument is that typically it's not actually the poorest of the poor and the the illiterate poorest of the poor who migrate. So there's there's lots of evidence that at some level, you know, you need a a certain minimum amount of education typically to actually enable you to migrate. So it's, it's quite probable that in the short term, investing in or rising education levels in some of the typical sending countries will actually increase the migration flows or the, the migration outflow or the, the demand, so to say, uh, for immigration. The, the answer or how to, to respond to that is, is at least twofold, uh, I guess. Uh, one is that insight certainly shouldn't be an argument to stop investing in education right? because the... Trying to stop migration or migration management shouldn't have been the prime motivation to begin with, and it shouldn't be if, if it turns out that that's not how it works that sh- can't be the reason to no longer invest in education uh, because there, we I think everyone here is agreed that there are plenty of other much better reasons uh, to do so. The other argument is that it's not really about the volume right? it's about the, the how migrants are integrated in, in receiving countries and in host countries. So if we accept that there will be migration movements, right, I, I don't know which countries Belgium specifically uh, is looking at in this context, right, but certainly there's much to be said for these people to be better educated when they come to Belgium. Nothing's going to get easier if the people coming are less educated than if they're, if they're better educated. Um, and if you look at the numbers, it's not like emigration to Europe, anyhow, is the outlet uh, for these frustrations. Right? Um, by, by most projections, you know Nigeria is going to have somewhere north of five, six, seven hundred million inhabitants potentially by. Uh, the second half of this century. Right? Um, and there are questions around the extent to which Nigeria will manage to absorb these, these cohorts in its labor market, right? but we're not seeing, you know, they're not all going to move to Europe. Right? There, will be, have to be, there will be other solutions to that. If you look at the actual numbers moving, and you look at the people who could potentially move, you know that 's not the main that 's not the main outlet um, so i think I think there's a, an aspect of expectation management there right you can 't expect education investments to do too much too quickly on that front it's a it 's a long game, but at the same time there's another uh, sorry this is um, uh, coming a bit, a bit late in my response but the research is actually a bit more subtle than that because there is also evidence that people, poor communities from the countryside, they don't tend as a first step to then emigrate abroad. So there is some evidence that increasing development and rural development and education in poor rural communities will in the first instance actually increase internal migration to the cities rather than emigration abroad. So it's, not, it's, it's complicated. You can't expect education to do too much and uh, too soon. But there are plenty of other better reasons to invest in education. And it's not going to do any harm uh, in terms of the people who do come of actually being able to, uh, to integrate them successfully.
1: Thank you for that question. I think we've run out of time, I'm afraid. Um, so, you know, just to, to say thank you so much. The report, the message is very clear. Investing in the education of those on the move is the difference between laying a path to frustration and unrest and laying a path to cohesion and peace. Thank you so much to you, Bilal, thank to you. the Gem Report, thank and to the Vahki Foundation for putting on this great panel. Thank you all.